0: You were just so insistent. I do were, I believe you. You were but like Dora like, the Explorer. You were I'm like, like a little I'm bit like Dora. figure out! I think that's so funny. And I felt so special because you were like, oh, you're all good. Like, I know what, what happened and why no, wait, and I'm what medication right. and everything.
1: I think it's like a little...
2: You know the aphorism, fake it till you make it? Well, that's the last phrase I'd use to describe Dr. Julie Roth. Dr. Roth is a professor of neurology here at Brown University and she practices at Rhode Island Hospital. But when you meet her and start talking about anything related to the brain, her eyes light up, and it's like she's falling in love with the field all over again, right in front of your eyes. And that's what today's episode is about. If you genuinely love what you do, patients can tell. They'll be healthier and you'll be a happier provider.
3: Just ask one of Dr. Roth's patients. We'll call her Melinda is a Yale-trained musician, and she used to work as an HR manager at a large company. The way she ended up in Dr. Roth's office is a fascinating story, but the relationship that follows showcases how important developing that rapport between physicians and patients is. I'm Viknesh Kasturi, And I'm Alex Homer. And this is Back of the Chart. One or so years ago, Melinda started having
0: migraine headaches. The doctor I was seeing, just a general practitioner doctor, said you're in a really high stress job and migraines can happen as part of that and you can even get to the point where you have optical migraines, which is when your vision is also impacted and it looks like you're having your own Vegas light show but inside your own head. The doctor gave her over-the-counter
2: medications for them and at first they went away. But at work one day she experienced an optical migraine. This time the medication didn't help. And then a few hours
0: later, another migraine. So I got through another migraine, another 30 to 45 minutes of just horror. And that night when I got home, I said, well, this is craziness. Obviously I need to now finally have a prescription.
3: But Melinda knew that it'd probably take a while to get an appointment and see a specialist who could help.
0: All I could think, and I think this is true of most people in the world how am I going to get through, like, six weeks if these migraines keep happening and all I really need is a prescription? Because that was what I thought. So I thought I was very clever. I went to the ER. I took the day off work. I said, ha! So I will sit in the ER for probably, like, ever for the whole time. I'll take a book. I dragged my mother along with me. I said, I'll treat you for lunch. And we sat in the ER. As Melinda
2: predicted, the doctors in the emergency room eventually did see her. And they did a CT scan to try to see what was happening. But when the report came back from the radiologist, the doctors asked Melinda an unexpected question.
0: And they came back and said, "Um, have you been having any seizures? And I was like, oh, goodness, no. And they said, well, the neurology people would like to talk to you. And so the neurology people came in and they said to me, you have a really large tumor in your head. And I was like, no, I don't. And they were like, yeah, you do. So we went back and forth a couple times, and finally they said, yeah, you do.
3: At first, Melinda refused to believe that she had a tumor. But after some back and forth, the doctors finally convinced her. She underwent surgery. And for a year and a half afterwards, her recovery was uneventful.
0: What I remember is I remember feeling tired, and so I took a nap on my sofa, and I woke up and I felt kind of groggy and I felt some pain in the back of my head. So I reached my hand around to the back of my head, and I brought my hand around, and there was blood on my hand. And I thought, that's really odd. So I went upstairs and took a shower. Yes, complete with shampoo, conditioner, everything. I'm sure the ER people would be cringing if they knew that. And I was all done with the shower, and, I was still bleeding, so I called my mom and I was like, I think I need to call 911 and I think I need to go to the hospital because the back of my head is
2: bleeding. Turns out, Melinda had experienced a seizure. And what exactly is that? Think of it like this. The neurons in the brain are all players in an orchestra. Usually, there's a conductor up front who makes sure that everyone plays in tempo. But say the conductor is removed. At first, things might be okay. But then some players start falling out of tempo and they start playing really loudly. And the other players, too, start playing as loudly as they can. And it all sort of degenerates into chaos until the musicians tire from the intensity of the effort. Sometimes, just one section of this metaphorical orchestra starts blaring out of control. Analogously, maybe the part of the brain that controls movement is affected, and so the person will twitch. But many times, the entire brain is swept up in this chaotic storm. And the patient convulses on the
1: ground. So... It's hard to know what kind of seizure Melinda had, but you know I would assume that it might be what's called a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, which is really the seizure you see on TV where people have lost consciousness, they might have convulsions, um, usually lasts no more than two minutes, um, but people can be very confused and disoriented afterwards.
3: After being taken to the emergency room and getting stitches, Melinda was referred to Dr. Roth for seizure management. Walking into Dr. Roth's office for her first visit, she had a lot on her mind.
0: I have to say, I am thankful every, every day, practically, to have Dr. Roth as my neurologist. She takes things in great stride, which is very calming. And I walk in to see her and she looked right at me. This was in our first meeting. And she said to me, I know exactly why this happened. And I was so relieved because I don't know that I still understood what had actually happened. And then she looked at me like a small child when they've made their mind up on something and they're not going to let it go. And she said to me, I need to understand why. How I don't did you get at all. <laughs> 18 months and not have a seizure? Yeah. And in that moment, I realized, Dr. Roth is so dedicated to her work—not just her patients, and you know, figuratively holding their hand and providing Kleenex if necessary—but
1: we have paper towels; we don't okay, even have Kleenex in our office. Paper
0: towels—the the, the cheap like the version of Kleenex. So cheap. But she's driven by this need to know, and I just sat there and I felt this weight just get lifted off of my shoulders like I'm in the right place. This person takes my case seriously. You were just you like made me feel so calm. Thank you. Um you know Well, you have to understand,
1: Melinda's tumor was really big, okay? Like, it was probably the size of my fist, maybe even bigger. And it was in her frontal lobes. It was actually between her two frontal lobes. But the reason I really wanted to know was it it was such a large tumor. It had been taken out. And usually those tumors do present, meaning that the first symptom you would have would be a seizure. And that wasn't really... How you had been diagnosed? You had had the headaches, the vision changes, because it had gotten it gotten so large, it was pressing on your optic nerves and interfering with your vision. So that was kind of one question on my mind. The tumor was gone, and why did it take so long to have a seizure? But in terms of, you know, what I thought was happening was after a surgery, there can be scar tissue that develops because the brain can react. Sometimes, even on the late side, to having been irritated or annoyed to begin with, and I think that was the nature of my question was, wow, that scar tissue was developing over the eighteen months since you'd had the surgery. And then why did the brain decide then to make a seizure? what was
0: what was that process like? I think it just wanted attention. Maybe I think I think did. it felt neglected. It wanted and... to bring us together. I yes. actually think that's probably <laughs> why.
1: you know, the brain is really, the, it's the only organ that talks to us. No other organ in the human body does that. And um, so when people have a brain problem, it can affect people in an unexpected way. It can affect people in a way that might be like invisible to the naked eye, but it's affecting them. Maybe they're having a symptom that seems very mysterious. And often it it's a neurological problem. You know, on, on these shows like House MD, whenever it's a big mystery, often it's a neurology thing. And Neurologists who watch the show are like, Oh yeah, I know, I know what that is. <laughs> you know? But it's um, so there's that element, but also like I, you know, people who are kind of struggling, like, I don't know what's happening to me. And I think that's what drove me to the field. Some areas where someone with a brain disorder might struggle, years later, they've figured out a workaround and they have the insight to figure out that workaround. And I think that's what is so inspiring about our meetings and You know, part of that inspiration comes when I have patients like Melinda who are just incredibly insightful into, like, how their bodies are working and have questions. I do better when people have questions and want to talk. I'm like, talk to me. (laughs) You know, I want to hear things. So um, I think for me, Melinda is really an ideal patient because she comes with questions. She comes with her own stories, her own thoughts. And it feels more. It feels like a partnership. Like we're we're working through things.
0: That's what makes her the ideal doctor, because I've been on the same medical prescription for seven and a half, eight years. There have been no changes in terms knock of wood. knock I'm, on wood. I'm so superstitious, yep. but we've been really lucky. There have been no other seizures. There have been no problems with the medication. And I think for me, the expectation normally would be that I would be like the typical, oh good, this is just gonna be a five minute appointment. But a real checkup is a doctor who says to me, no, I I need more than that. Like, have you had any things that suddenly you've discovered you can do? And what's happening with this? And what's happening with that? And so it's, it's not just this surface level inquiry.
3: Throughout the length of her relationship with Melinda, Dr. Ross shares in the victories and the setbacks of the recovery. As we know, the tumor in Melinda's brain affected the optic nerve. That's why Melinda had those vagus fireworks in her brain. But it also crushed the olfactory nerve, which is used for smell. Melinda's doctors weren't optimistic about the chances of her recovering that sense. But the brain is plastic and adaptable and always surprising.
0: And I remember the first time I I had certain smells, they'd sort of come up on me unawares and attack me like a cat waiting for you and then hijacks you when you walk down the hallway. And I came in and I said, I have had the strangest thing happen this week. And Dr. Roth was immediately like, tell me all about it. And I said, I smelled bleach. Like, can you imagine bleach of all things? Not coffee, not fresh cut grass, bleach. And her eyes were all big and she was like, that's just fantastic. It makes our conversations so much more interesting because I can share that with her and she does get excited because I was like really taken aback when that happened.
2: At this point, you might have made a couple of assumptions about Melinda. You might think she's a bit loquacious, extroverted, or excessively dramatic. But here's the thing. The tumor and surgery changed Melinda's personality significantly.
0: So this is what I've always said about myself, although people find this hard to believe. I spent the first 37 years of my life, that was the 37 years before my surgery, as a very introverted person. I don't like... Big groups of people. I don't do well with 15 conversations happening at once. I I like to be the wallflower who watches other people doing things. And I spent, I think, the first six months post surgery, and I would be thinking in my head, oh my gosh, like who is that person that is like so loud and like talking about all this stuff? And simultaneously, the other part of my brain would be like, hello, that's you. And I would be like, no, that's not possible. And then, of course, we all see where this is going. The answer was yes, it was me. And I was like horrified. I was like, oh, I'm like telling this person behind me in the supermarket that I had brain surgery. Like, what on earth is happening here? And it, it was very difficult for me because I don't think it's anything that is personality-wise, like, off of the of the scale of personality type. I think people who are extroverted would just be like, welcome to the club. But in my own head, as far as my own, how I see myself, I don't see myself as an extroverted person. So there was a lot of angst for me. It was like some really deep, like, Russian novel. It was like, <laughs> there was this angst of, like, why am I doing this? And, of course, it comes back to it's not just how information comes into my head now, it's how information goes out of my head, which is without any control. At, at times, if I'm passionate about something, it can be a very high volume. And that was very unnerving for me. Because I was like, but what what if I don't want these people to know these things? (laughs) It's just falling right out of my mouth. So it's like this internal struggle where you see yourself differently than what's actually happening because of the injury to your brain. I mean, most of us
1: don't experience a personality change in our lifetimes. And so, you know, you wonder if something like that happened to any of the rest of us, would we have the insight to even figure out what was going on? And I think that you have an ability to look back on that and really dissect it and figure out, like, what was different about yourself and how that was meaningful to you. Um, But it's true. It's another kind of example of how we assume there are attributes of ourselves, and that's what makes us who we are. But it's there's more to us than that. Uh, so I I went to Brown and I was part of the eight-year program, the PLME program. And before I came to Brown, I definitely wanted to be a doctor. I'd worked in my dad's dental office. I loved the doctor-patient interactions there. I loved how my dad would get, you know, for his patients who couldn't pay for dental work. He would usually get food of some sort. So something that his patients would make. So um, memorable were um, getting dim sum. And uh, non-food items, a pair of shoes, um, yard work once. So there was a lot of bartering. And so in my mind, I really wanted to be in this field where I was getting stuff from people. I know that sounds really cheesy, but I liked that um, that social contract, You know, seeing the same patient over years. Because I really worked for years in his office doing front desk stuff. What I love is kind of the, the long-term follow-up and also um, trying to figure out what's going on. Like, I want to know more. I always want to delve and I want to get really into it. So through med school, long story short, um, I didn't know much about neurology, but I rotated on a neurology service when I was a third year med student. And it dawned on me like this is my field and these are my people. They they don't just leave the room after five minutes with like okay well we'll refer you to this this doctor for this this doctor for this. You just you have to talk to the patient you have to listen to the patient in order to solve the mystery and help the person. And so for me, it was um, it was like a really good combination of solving that. Mystery and helping somebody because you could be a good detective and figure it
0: out and have that continuity of care. I think that one of the ways as patients that we can often undermine ourselves is you see these doctors and they're like wicked smart and They have like all this like special language that they talk, like all these fancy words and we don't understand those words. And it's kind of intimidating. We can, as patients, hesitate to ask questions because we think they might be stupid or that they were already answered and we just didn't realize it. Or we don't think we're supposed to actually ask any questions even if we really think they might actually be a valid question. And sometimes, perhaps even in the extreme, we maybe don't feel that important. Like maybe there are more important patients out in the waiting room and we're just that five minute patient kind of thing.
1: I actually am probably a neurotic, a pretty neurotic person. Not probably. I am one. Um, I don't like to miss things. And so I don't I don't like to be surprised like oh, well, we didn't want to tell you about this doctor. Or We didn't want to bother you. That's like my nightmare is that somebody thought they might be bothering me with information that's like really pertinent. Like that's the thing that we need to talk about. So to me, part of the art is um, sometimes people don't talk as spontaneously is the ability to kind of draw somebody out and try to figure out, is there something on their mind? Is there something I want them to get as much out of that visit as possible?
0: I feel so fortunate that the doctors I got by chance for this humongous, serious event in my life jive with me. But it's also made me realize that if they had not, would I have been brave enough to say, listen, Dr. Roth, I don't really think this is working. I need to see someone else. So what I try to say to people is... If you go see someone and they don't bond with you, they don't jive with you, go to the next person because you deserve to have someone who's going to try to establish that kind of a level of relationship with you. Like I could ask you the craziest question, Dr. Roth, and you would never laugh at me. You might laugh and be like, that's laugh, so but funny. Not at you. Like you might say to me, <laughs> I, do I, laugh I was just going to ask you that. That might be why you were laughing. Yeah. Or you might say, that's so funny. I've heard that question like three times this week. That's yeah. a great question. But it's never in the sense of feeling put down or made to feel not important. And I think it, when, you, when you have that, that's priceless. And we all deserve to
1: have that. Mm-hmm. Again, like, you know, you're acting, Melinda, like, like I'm some unique doctor. I'm really not, though. I'm just like a regular person. <laughs> I'm just a regular person. So...
0: I, I, I'm going to smile at you from across the table between all this technical gear that's on the table and say she really is unique and she really doesn't recognize that. And I think that's the the humbleness and the humility of someone who enjoys the learning process because someone who enjoys the learning process, you've never reached your pinnacle and you are open-minded because you think a person thinks at that point, I still have so much to learn. And rather than that being depressing or like the Debbie Downer conversation, it's exciting. I'm excited because I have so much more to learn and I can't wait. Um, that's what I get when we talk. If, if you want to talk about like just an overall perception is how excited you are, Dr. Roth, about your field you actually said that to me one I time am, though you, I read, you but said you bring me articles and then I i'm do. like i go
1: home and i'm excited to read the article i do i bring her so, articles i'm t- the total nerd up.
0: geek i i because i also am, am interested in learning everything i think at one point my neuropsychologist was like please don't read all of these articles some of them do not apply to you because <laughs> <laughs> she was worried i was getting like really depressed and i was like no i'm finding this yeah. really fascinating like all of this work on the brain and so i bring them become to a, become you become a Become a big, like, I uh, am. brain aficionado yes. yourself. And I bring them to Dr. It's Roth like and I'm like, I don't you know? know if these are applicable, but I thought they, you might find them interesting. But they're interesting, yeah. You said to me, I'm so excited. I'm going to be 90 and there's still going to be yeah. exciting stuff happening in that's my true. field. That's true. And when you hear something like that, you know that's the person you want. Well, yeah. the brain
1: is just really exciting. And for me, I just. It's like tuning in to a program like, oh, I wonder what's happening with this patient these days. Oh, I'm about to find out. So I always have that, you know, maybe not with every single patient, but with a lot of my patients and definitely with you, like, you know, I wonder how things are going. Every day that I see patients, Somebody's at least like, thank you, at least one person, usually more than that. And that's a nice feeling at the end of the day.
3: Dr. Roth and Melinda, thanks so much for joining us, and thank you for listening. Tune in two weeks to hear a story about pediatric neurology. How can you tell if an infant is having a neurological problem? Back of the Chart is produced and hosted by Alex Homer and Vignesh
2: Kasturi. Tweet at us at BackoftheChart, or check out our new website, backofthechart.weebly.com if you like this episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love this episode, make sure you leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Helps new listeners find the show. The music in this episode is by Blue Dust Sessions. Special thanks to faculty and staff at Brown University for making this possible.